Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. finally back from hiatus and we have so much news yeah i think your news is a little bit more exciting than mine so if you want to kick it off (laughs) sure so as of may 16th i'm officially dr floyd i passed my dissertation defense um and have kind of graduated at a distance so um If you follow us on Twitter, you probably saw that I moved all the way across the country to Virginia for a job, and so uh, I followed my graduation on Instagram. So I'm officially Dr. Floyd now. Yeah, congratulations. It's so exciting. (laughs) Thanks. It sounds like a lot has been going on on your end, too. Yeah, a lot, but of much smaller magnitude, I guess. I'm still Ms. Dunville. I'm still trying to finish the dissertation, which is always fun. I also moved, but I moved a mile down the road, so definitely of a smaller magnitude than your move, Courtney. <laughs> if you follow me on Twitter, you might have seen that I put on a conference in May, which is really fun for Victoria and Elliot's joint bicentenary. It's just really great, and I met some really cool people. And off the back of meeting actually Beverly Rylett, who maintains the incredible online George Elliot archive, I've started my own digital archive. Yay! It's still very early days, but I've started an archive for everything that the Trollops who aren't Anthony wrote in periodicals. It's kind of my best succinct way of putting it. Yeah, and um, can we link that on our on our new author pages? Maybe. Yes, absolutely. That would be really cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's still kind of embryonic in form, um, because obviously I've only been looking at it when I a bit you know need 10 minutes away from the thesis every so often right but it's really exciting like a really cool development yeah um it sounds amazing i'm really excited to dive in and i think that the digital like digital projects like they seem like they're um kind of uh lateral productivity procrastination you know but i think they are really um like my kind of fiddling around with um text mining actually revolutionized the last chapter of my dissertation so <laughs> you never know where they will lead us yeah yeah well the the kind of idea for it came out of like i say talking to bev Ryler and i basically said i already have this spreadsheet of everything they wrote i should just share it with them so it's just cleaning that up and putting it into csv format to upload so it's not actually a huge project mm-hmm. well it is a huge project but i've already done the majority of it so I was like, yes, I should share this with people. Yeah. Yeah, it's so useful. I was sort of I was inspired by your tweets about that to sort of start formalizing my giant bibliography of Fergus Hume's work. He was a nineteenth century mystery writer. He had like one best selling novel and then the rest of his were sort of um poorly regarded. But anyway, he wrote over 140 novels and he also wrote plays and songs. <laughs> so um he was incredibly prolific but i don't think that there is a comprehensive list of everything that he's written so 
yeah, I've got to be honest, I haven't heard of him before, but that's a, that's a kind of crazy thing with the Victorian writers, is there's these people who were popular and have such a massive corpus, and then we just don't know them anymore. Yeah, yeah. He wrote um, The Mystery of a Handsome Cab, which sort of kicked off the, really, the mystery craze, but then he did it to death. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> what you do if you invent a genre? <laughs> yeah. Justifiably. I think that's a bit of a theme. Okay, so today's episode, we're planning to introduce our new season, which will be debuting at the end of August, as usual, um, the last Friday of the month, as usual. Um, but we have a bunch of other news to share, including news about things we're doing with the podcast and our website. So, um, do you want to start us off, Eleanor? Yes. Yeah, so Courtney's done some really great work updating the website, getting it all looking beautiful and adding new sections so we've got biographies of all of our writers with some little sketches that I've drawn which is my other I was explaining to Courtney it's what I do with my Pomodoro so I do the 25 minutes writing five minutes drawing Victorian writers which is quite a nice way to split up my day they're all on the website and it's amazing thank you yeah, so hopefully you just get a more rounded view of our authors from the website. And mm-hmm. like we said, we'll link in the periodical trollops and so you'll be able to look at everything they wrote in periodicals. Yeah, so um, right now it's sort of in beginning stages um, because I'm just doing this as I have the time. But we have an explore tab in our main menu and then it drops down. And eventually what you'll see there, um, and you can see sort of the beginnings of it now, um, are a site-wide timeline that sort of has the highlights of everything we've covered. So um, Queen Victoria's reign, major events um, from our around the world feature, um, and then our subjects, life events and publications. And then you'll see authors pages. It'll have a timeline for each individual author, as Eleanor mentioned, a a biography, um, a link to the resources that we used in the creation of episodes, but also further resources like the Trollope bibliography, like other biographies or databases or other DH projects that we've encountered. Yeah, one thing that you've done with the author pages that I think is really cool is split them up into categories and not just women and men and novelists and poets, but really important categories like writers of colour and disabled writers, which I think is a really important thing that we're kind of trying to focus on this season as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can now, we're thinking of this as another entry point. You can listen chronologically, as you always have been able to do via whatever podcatcher you use, and you can listen by season, or uh, you can still search by those things, but now you can search by individual authors and sort by these sort of categories, because we really want to highlight the diversity, the immense diversity among Victorian writers. It wasn't all wealthy white writers. Um, It wasn't all men in the Victorian period. And it wasn't only fiction writers, so we're going to try to spotlight increasingly non-fiction writers or journalists or other sorts of writers too. Yeah, and as someone who's really interested in periodicals, that's such a... Outside of academia, I think Victorian journalism isn't quite as well-known as fiction and it deserves to be. And inside academia, there's some really great things being done. So it'd be nice to kind of introduce it to the wider world. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, as you can tell, we're still very, very far from running out of material or inspiration for the podcast. Um, 
We've been talking about making these kinds of changes for a while, but the sort of catalyst for them this year was that we are participating in NAFSA's Data Caucus Conference here at the University of Virginia in November. So we'll be presenting on Victorian scribblers and the way that we're working with data um, and our goals for the podcast and the website um, in the fall. We're really, really excited to be part of this conference. Yeah, and I don't know if I've actually told you about this before, but I'm very seriously looking into coming over to Virginia to do that in person rather than remotely. Yes! That would be so amazing. Yeah, so we might be meeting in person. That would be crazy after, what is it, like three years? Two years? (laughs) Finally! Um, Something we didn't mention that we're working on as quickly as we can is uh, providing transcripts for our back catalog so that they're more accessible. Um, Going forward, we're going to just make it part of our episode production process to create transcripts. So those will be our priority, but as we can, we're going to provide transcripts for the back catalog as well. And I'm hoping, have you ever heard of OMS? It does, it rings a bell. It's called the Oral History Metadata Synchronizer, and it's a tool developed by or supported by folks at the University of Kentucky Libraries, but basically it allows you to sync up uh, transcripts with recordings in real time so you can listen and see the words at the same time. So right now we just have very basic click download PDF transcripts, but I'm working on implementing this OMS tool so that sort of the transcripts play alongside the recording. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's really, like, they, it's an open... Open source? Mm, I almost said open access. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, open source. But you have to apply to use it um, because it's like a central database or something. But um, they really are excited about sort of public history projects and they very quickly made us an account. So that's something that I will also be working on this summer. That is so cool because I know that's one of the, it's a big thing that I've just been writing about and talking about loads about how that can make things so much more accessible for print disabled people or for people with things like dyslexia so they can follow it along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we'll be taking some important long overdue strides toward greater accessibility in the podcast. And then we have one more big plan. We're planning a sort of spin-off Um, called Victorian Scribblers Presents, in which every year we will create an audiobook version of a lesser-known Victorian novel that sort of thematically links with our current season. So these might be serial novels that kind of uh, lend themselves to a podcast audiobook format, or they might just be sort of shorter uh, volume novels that weren't published serially, but we're looking forward to bringing more Victorian writing to your ears. Yeah, I was going to say, it works so well for this era in general, even if they're not specifically serialised fiction, to split them up in that way. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of writers were writing sort of, not quite episodically, but in in parts, like either volumes or like George Eliot's um, part issue. I mean, they're larger parts, but... Yeah, the eight parts of Middlemarch and Daniel Deronda. Mm Mm-hmm. But monthly issue parts, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the upcoming season now. Yeah, what what is our theme? I mean, I know, but the listeners don't. <laughs> I don't tell Eleanor anything. <laughs> <laughs> 
So this is so nice that she just goes along willingly and I'm the dictator. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> this year we've planned a season focusing on speculative scribblers. We're spotlighting writers whose work we would consider science fiction, fantasy, or supernatural horror today. Um, they wouldn't have been called those things in the 19th century, but they are recognizable as those things. And we're going to chat a bit more about all of that in the rest of today's episode. Yeah, so first, why don't we take a trip around the world in the Victorian period? In 1836, the year before the Victorian period properly begins, Samuel Colt received a US patent for his infamous revolving cylinder pistol. In 1837, Louis Agassiz becomes the first person to propose that the Earth has been subject to a past ice age. In the same year, Charles Darwin gave his first speech to the London Geological Society, and future president Abraham Lincoln was admitted to the Illinois Bar. In 1843, at the age of 28, Ada Lovelace translated the text of L.F. Menobrea's lecture, Sketch of the Analytical Engine Invented by Charles Babbage, from French into English, adding germinal notes that were longer than the actual speech and constitute some of the earliest computer science. On August 28, 1845, Scientific American publishes its first issue. On September 23, 1846, the planet Neptune is discovered. On October 16, 1854, Oscar Wilde is born. In 1852, Henri Giffard builds his first airship. On April 20, 1862, Louis Pasteur and Claude Bernard complete the first pasteurization test. And I'm going to take this one as well because I added it because anyone who knows me even vaguely will have heard me talk about it at length. But in 1864, Edward Drinker Cope, which is his real name, very fortunate, and Othniel Charles Marsh meet in Berlin. Two would go on to cause havoc through their competition to find the most dinosaur fossils. In 1867, Christopher Scholes created the first reliable typewriter with the help of Samuel Sowell and Carlos Glidden. On August 19th, 1871, Orville Wright is born. On December 7th, 1873, Willa Cather is born. On March 24th, 1874, Harry Houdini is born. In 1876, Alexander Graham Bell patents the telephone. He gave the first model to his friend and mentor, James Murray, the first editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, who promptly stashed it in his attic because he didn't really care about it. In 1877, Emil Berliner invents the microphone. On May 25th, 1878, legendary jazz tap dancer Bill Bojangles Robinson was born in Richmond, Virginia. September 1st, 1878, Emma Mills Nuts becomes the world's first female telephone operator. In 1885, James Starley invents the modern bicycle. In 1888, the first Kodak camera, patented by Eastman Walker, becomes available for purchase. In 1892, James Morrison invented an electric car. Also in 1892, canned pineapple became available to the public. It's a big year. I love that. What's more important? I don't know. In 1893, Henry Reichenbach invented celluloid photographic film, revolutionizing the film industry. On August 4th, 1901, Louis Armstrong is born. On September 14th, 1901, Theodore Roosevelt becomes the 26th President of the United States. On December 5th, 1901, Walt Disney is born. And on December 17th, 1903, nearly three years after Queen Victoria's death, the Wright brothers took their first flight. Nice place to leave it. Just taking flight. 
Yeah. So over the course of the century, um, you can kind of see why the Victorians might have been primed to be writing what we would call speculative fiction or science fiction and fantasy today. Between scientific advances and inventions and something we didn't really touch on but like the rise of spiritualism where people were trying to communicate with the dead in a variety of ways including using things like telephones and automatic writing there was a lot going on that really lent itself to this new sort of set of closely linked genres yeah i think it's interesting that we're kind of sorry this isn't a fully formed thought but the patterns that you see in the resurgence of science fiction and speculative fiction and how, you know, in the 60s when we're going to the moon for the first time, it's a huge thing. And then it's kind of becoming a big topic again, mainly mm-hmm. in a dystopian manner, because maybe we're not as optimistic about the future as the Victorians were. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe before we kind of talk about the sort of cultural resonances of these things, we can sort of break down what we mean by speculative. Do we just mean science fiction? Um, and and would these things have existed? Or how, to what extent did we really see this sort of fiction in the Victorian period? So I have kind of a really broad sort of scope for what counts as speculative, in part because I am a speculative writer. Um, but sort of broadly writ, Uh, I think it includes fantasy of various kinds, so this could be um, like swords and sorcery, like um, sort of medieval fantasy, like we see in things like Game of Thrones. Um, It could be uh, contemporary fantasy, where there's sort of just a a fantastical element set in your modern world. Um, It could be proper science fiction, and by proper, I really mean that it's having to do with what would have been cutting-edge science at the time. So scientific concepts or methods or uh, inventions um, feature heavily in some way to imagine a future or reimagine a past. Um, Things like alternate histories and utopian fiction and supernatural fiction or the gothic are also sort of fall under this uh, speculative label. (laughs) Would you say that your list of Speculative fiction is speculative. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> that was the reaction that deserved, to be honest. It was in my head the whole time. <laughs> that just should be there every time I talk, to be honest. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> so, did all of these things exist in the Victorian period? Yes. They also existed before the Victorian period, well before, um, in fact. Yeah, so these things definitely existed in the Victorian period and before the Victorian period. And there's an older article by Darko Suvin where he claims that the first science fiction novel was Edward Bulwer-Lytton's Becoming Race. Um, I feel like I've probably talked about my feelings about Edward Bulwer-Lytton on this podcast, but... Uh, it's safe to say that I'm not a huge fan and I think he gets a lot of credit for things that he doesn't necessarily deserve and this is definitely one of them. Margaret Cavendish has some things to say. Definitely. Yeah, so in 1666, 
Margaret Cavendish published what we might consider the first novelistic sci-fi in England. So heavily qualified because we're only talking about English novels at this point. We're not speaking for like the first sci-fi ever because, you know, you can go back further and see fantastic elements in um, Chinese literature and of course like Arabic literature, like the Thousand and One Nights is speculative in lots of ways too. So yeah, talking specifically about England, we can say at least in 1666, sci-fi exists. Yeah, and then, yeah, so... Sorry. No, I was just going to say you also got the issue of preservation where there might have been sci-fi before that, but it was either orally transmitted or Mm -hmm. it was written down, but those records haven't been preserved, so... This is just a caveat to say you can never know when the first was, but we can say that it was way before Edward Bulwer Lytton. Yeah, and that's not even counting fantasy. Um, like Beowulf is fantasy, right? Like so, <laughs> we've got <laughs> we've got fantasy going way back. Yeah, I feel like all the medievalists have just swiveled to stare at have me. Have you read The Blazing World? Um. <laughs> yeah. No, I have not read The Blazing World, but I recently read a really great Twitter thread about it, and now I'm, it's on my list. I just haven't quite gotten to it yet. Yeah, because I, I can't remember why it came up, but I studied it in, for my undergraduate degree, basically. And it's most wonderfully mm. bonkers thing. Like, the whole premise is that she gets in a rowboat, goes to the top of the earth, and somehow gets transported into a different world. Wow. Would recommend. It's balmy, but fun. Yeah, I, I, my brain keeps going back to different medieval things like um, the Book of Marjorie Kemp, which has speculative elements if you're like kind of perceiving it from a secular frame. Yeah, so anyways, these things existed. They predate the Victorian period, yeah. but they also become very, very popular in the Victorian period in a variety of ways. So we've mentioned things before, like when we had Dr. Katie Jola Riviere on the podcast last year, kind of Victorian medieval fantasies like... Um, like Tennyson's The Lady of Shalott, or, you know, a sort of Arthurian legend is an alternate history in a way. So that's extremely popular in the Victorian period, especially in the early parts. Yeah, and I think hopefully most people, if you ask them about the first science fiction, would not say Edward Bulwer-Lytton, and a few might say Margaret Cavendish, but I think most people probably would say Mary Shelley. Yes, and... Her Most Famous is published in 1818, which predates the Victorian period, as I ranted in one of the first episodes. (laughs) Um, And I've created a clip of that, uh, which I'll probably insert here. (laughs) Basically me putting my foot in my mouth saying, Mary Shelley is not a Victorian writer, which I'm setting out to disprove in this season. And on that note, I should also say that Mary Shelley is not a Victorian writer either. Mary Shelley is not a Victorian writer either. Mary Shelley is not a Victorian writer either. Um, But Frankenstein is not a Victorian novel. Um, It's published in 1818 when Shelley is a teenager. Um, But most people would say she invented the modern genre of science fiction. And... Right, yeah. Invented might be a strong word, but she definitely... I mean, given that it exists, it pre-exists her, but she definitely sort of kicked something off in the 19th century that is still going today. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
this season, we want to take you on sort of a tour of speculative fiction in the Victorian period by showcasing some important but now sort of forgotten speculative writers, um, starting with Mary Shelley, who is obviously not lesser known or forgotten, but whose Victorian era works um, are pretty obscure. Like, you might have studied them in college, or if you're an academic, you might work with them, but the public doesn't really often encounter anything past Frankenstein. So we'll start with her. Um, and then who's up next for us, Eleanor? Next we have the kind of the queen of new woman writers, I would say. I don't know if queen would be what she would like to be referred to as, but uh, Marie Corelli. Maybe king of new woman writers is more appropriate. Yes, yeah. So her work is sort of um, weird, like intentionally, mm, how am I going to say this? Sort of like new age for the Victorians. So she thinks about things like electricity and the transmission of souls. Speculative is probably the best way to describe her work, even though it has sci-fi elements sometimes. It's sort of like um, weird yeah. fantasy. Marie Corelli liked to think of herself as the Victorian Shakespeare. She even bought an estate in Stratford-upon-Avon, and um, Corelli lived in her Stratford-upon-Avon home with her partner, Bertha uh, Vanderweyer, for much of her uh, career. Um, they're buried next to each other. Um, I think Bertha wrote her uh, memoir, or her, um, sorry, biography. Yeah, like a really interesting take on a Victorian writer who definitely doesn't fit in the mould of what people might initially imagine when they think Victorian writer of a stuffy, upper-class white man. I'm describing Edward Bulwer-Lytton now. <laughs> I'm sure he's great, but I'm sure his work's great. He's not. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, she's kind of like, if you're if you've watched the popular um, uh, HBO series about Anne Lister, she's sort of like a, a later um, novelist version of Anne Lister in that she's very openly defying Victorian conventions, but she's also a very devout Christian. So Marie Corelli contains multitudes, um, as many sci-fi fantasy writers do. From Marie Corelli, we move into the, the quote, new world. Um, so U.S. writers are going to be featured for the first time in Victorian Scribblers um, and talk about Martin R. Delaney, who was an African-American writer of utopian novels. He was an abolitionist, journalist, physician, soldier, and writer, and arguably, according to Wikipedia, the first proponent of black nationalism. Is that true? We will find out in our biographical episode of him. So he wrote a novel called Blake, or The Huts of America, that imagines a um, an African-American um, revolution against white oppressors. Um, so alternate future, alternate history. Delaney is on recent lists of important African-American SFF writers, um, because in the wake of, um, if you follow the science fiction fantasy uh, world currently, um, 
N.K. Jemison just won her third Hugo Award for her brilliant um, Broken Earth trilogy, and um, she's amazing, and it's amazing, And but there's been, like, backlash that somehow she only got it for diversity reasons, which is BS, of course. Um, so people have been putting together lists of, you know, like, there have always been black SFF writers, you know. Um, so he is an important figure in the history of African-American science fiction fantasy, as is Pauline Hopkins, um, who my friend Dr. Angela Rovac will come to help us talk about. Um, Pauline Hopkins was uh, writing at the turn of the 19th century, so she's just kind of barely a Victorian scribbler. She's more 20th century, but she wrote um, science fiction as well. Yeah, she got in there just before Victoria died, I think. So she, she can claim that, I think I remember 1900. It's a nice round number. So her fourth novel, I think, is the one that is most speculative, and it's called Of One Blood or The Hidden Self, and it was serialized from 1902 to 1903. And it's about a black medical student who falls in love with a woman who uh, turns out to be the reincarnation of a princess of the Ethiopian lost world of Moreau. And she has amnesia and he's trying to cure her. And um, Anyway, so Pauline Hopkins was also, let's see, she was an editor, a journalist, a playwright, and an author. Um, and the novel that is most, most speculative um, was also the, the final novel of her career. And then our final speculative scribbler is Richard Marsh, who is the author of The Beetle, I think is his most well-known Mm-hmm. work which is incredibly speculative supernatural it's strikingly similar to dracula um but came out before dracula so i'm not um yeah 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 that, i've heard that when i was looking for a reference image for my sketch of him the beetle shows up nine times out of ten instead of his actual face because obviously it's such an evocative image for cover designers <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it is. He writes as Richard Marsh. That's not his um, birth name. Um, He had to change his name after, I think, a stint in debtor's prison, if I'm remembering right. It's not debtor's prison. It's legit prison. Did some check fraud. Uh, He was forging checks. Oh, yeah. I knew it had something to do with money, not debt. <laughs> yeah, well, kind Fra- of debt. But... Fraud. <laughs> yeah. Debt to society, maybe. He was born Richard Bernard Heldman. Yeah, but he wrote largely, like, it wasn't just the Beatle. He wasn't just, like, a one-time SFF writer. Um, he wrote uh, things like The Goddess, A Demon of 1900, um, and... A bunch of other speculative stuff, much of which is um, kind of problematic. I was going to say culturally insensitive might be the... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Which a lot of, um, you know, speculative work is often really intricately bound up with empire. Like, we still see it today in science fiction where... You know, you have sort of people colonizing space, or you have empires um, of different sort of like uh, alien races or whatever, and it's really sort of bound up in the history of imperial 
takeovers. So, you know, like early moon, um, moon landing fantasies are sort of, people have argued sort of like, um, uh, I'm rambling a little bit, like things like H.G. Wells' um, The War of the Worlds. It's sort of like fear that the sort of colonizing that you have done is about to happen to you, right? Yeah, and also I think with a lot of speculative fiction, there's this necessity to create an other, and it just happens to be easier for a lot of writers to imagine, you know, a group of people who are already othered as the other, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so yeah, those are all things we're going to be talking about this season in more depth as we consider these authors' lives and their work. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. This is something that I know my research is pretty much all in realism, dipping into the sensation novel. So this is really interesting to me because it's something that I know Mm. relatively little about. But it's really cool. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So episode 15, Mary Shelley, is going to be coming to you on the last Friday of August. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you about Mary Shelley soon. Bye. Bye. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com slash support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you.
pretty softy. Whoa! Say, don't hit the moon. Oh, no. Not yet, but soon you for me. Oh, gee, you're a fly kid. Not me. I'm a sky kid, gee. I'm up in the air about you for fair. Come, Josephine, in my flying machine, going up. She goes up, she goes. Balance yourself like a bird on a beam in the air. She goes, there she goes, up, up, a little bit higher. Music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number no. 2 in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine in My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archive. And the drum roll sound effect we used in this episode was created by DJL Projects. <laughs>